we've been looking at this uh, theme of heaven uh, this weekend, uh, what actually it is, uh, you know, how to, when to kind of look forward to heaven, and we're going to continue to do that now, but now I want to kind of shift the focus just slightly and really focus on what it is that Jesus uh, told us about heaven. What did Jesus promise about heaven? And now there's three things, I'm just going to mention the three of the things that Jesus promised uh, about heaven, and the first thing uh, is he promised us a home. He promised us, there we go. Um, you know, we've been looking at descriptions of the new earth and what it is and what we can expect heaven to be like as in our final destination, the new earth, where we're going to have a, a real physical uh, body and a real physical universe. And I want to see this as something that we're to look forward to. And, and there's, there's reasons I share for that. I think it's good for us to do that. Important and helpful to actually have a picture of heaven that we can look forward to. But in another sense, I really don't care what heaven is like. I just want to know for sure that it's real and that we're going there and that I'm going there. And, uh, and so, because here's the deal. I have not been there. I just fully admit I've not been there, but I am so grateful that someone who has been there has come to us, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given us assurance of what lies beyond. And one of the clearest places uh, in the Bible that really gives us this complete assurance from Jesus himself about what lies beyond the grave is John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. six uh, 1 to 6, one of my favorite passages where Jesus, on the night before he goes to the cross, gives assurance to disciples. And he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you know what my favorite line in that passage is? It's, if it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, this is the night before Jesus dies. And, and so, it, it's, it's a, and, he, and he says to his very best friends that this is not the end. If this were it, if if this was all there is, if this life was all there is, Jesus says, I'd be up front with you. I wouldn't string you along with false hope, but Jesus says, this is not all there is. There is life beyond this grave, and that's ultimately, that's all I need to know. All I need to know is that we've been promised a good home by Jesus, by a God who loves us. And so ultimately, it's good to focus on heaven and, and what that may be. But ultimately, I just want to know it's true, and it is true, absolutely true. Jesus has promised us. So that's the first thing. We've been promised by Jesus at home. The second thing that Jesus promises us uh, in regards to the life to come after we die is rewards. Now, I have to admit, I've always been really troubled by this one, rewards. I mean, on the one hand, it is so clear in Scripture, and it's emphasized again and again that Jesus calls us to do things, and as a result, he's promised us rewards. But on the other hand, I've struggled with this because it just sounds kind of mercenary to me. I, like, I, I feel like we should be doing things kind of out of, out of a selflessness. 
just because or just because we love God, not try to do stuff so that we can get a reward. It just sounds so unspiritual. Remember when I was uh, your age, I was a young or younger than some of you guys at college. I think I was in college and I was at USC and I was part of a campus ministry campus crusade for Christ. It's now called Crew. And I, I totally remember being in a dorm room and with my discipler, uh, Jim Kirchable, a uh, great guy. And uh, I remember just sharing this. I'm just really, tr- I mean, I'm really troubled by these verses. Like, should we really be doing things for rewards? That just doesn't seem, that seems so selfish. And so, you know, it doesn't seem to mesh what I, what I think I know of Jesus calling us to. And I don't remember what he said, but it was probably something like, Peter, it's in the Bible, just deal with it. Um, and, and that does seem to be what we need to do. I mean, it's in the Bible, so we deal with it. But not only is it in the Bible, Jesus himself so emphatically emphasizes this connection of, of, of connecting with following him are these promises of rewards. And it's actually even connected with the actual passage that, uh, um, that we've been kind of looking at last night and this morning. There's this kind of key passage where we've been talking about, you know, the renewal of all things. Things Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you that the renewal of all things. Do you know what the context of that verse is? The verse right before it is Peter says, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will be there be for us? In other words, he's saying, what's in it for us, is Peter saying. And what's striking to me is, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter and say, you should be thinking like that, Peter. I mean, you should just be doing this because it's what Jesus' people do, just have the, a selflessness. No, Jesus actually gives him a, an answer. He says, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me uh, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Those are astonishing promises. And, and it's not an isolated promise. Jesus again and again holds out rewards as, as being a motivating uh, factor. Um, Matthew 5, 11 to 12, he says, Blessed are you, those who, when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, false in my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, beware of practicing your rights before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. But he goes on instead in secret. And he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In Matthew 10, verse 42, and whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And that's just a sampling. There are so many times where Jesus holds out rewards as a motivating uh, motivation for following him. Um, and this seems to me, it just seems to, to, to not mesh with everything else we kind of know of things that Jesus seems to say in other parts where he seems to call us not to do things out of desire, but more it seems like to do things out of self-sacrifice and, you know, take up my cross and follow me, deny ourselves. It seems to be that it doesn't mesh with those kinds of calls that it seems like is, is so prominent in the teachings of Jesus. It's almost like having desires is a bad thing. I kind of get that impression lay down your life, take up your cross, and, and follow Jesus. Um, as, but Jesus seems to be encouraging uh, those desires, desires for reward. 
And in fact, not only that, but as C.S. Lewis uh, says in a marvelous essay that he wrote called The Way of Glory, he notes that in most of those passages uh, where Jesus calls for us to lay down our lives, to deny self, and to take up our cross, Jesus himself, in those passages, makes an appeal to desire. In those calls to self-denial, which means, C.S. Lewis says that, that Jesus never calls us just to self-denial for self-denial's sake, as if in self-denial is in itself a good thing. As if it's the goal. It's not the goal. It's the means of something greater. In, in the call to self-denial, Jesus makes an appeal to desire. For example, he says, sell all you have. And what? You will have treasure in heaven. It's an appeal to desire for the treasure in heaven. He says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. What's the motivation? Not losing your life, finding your life. He holds out that as the desire. What Jesus is doing in all those passages of denying self, it's all about letting go of something lesser to gain something greater. As C.S. Lewis says in this essay, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so what are the rewards, though? We don't know exactly what the rewards are. Some people think it's just the ability to enjoy God more fully in heaven. Maybe it's connected to that infinite joy that Lewis talks about. I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that's a large part of it. But I think there's, there's more to it than that. I think there's also seems to be a carryover from this life to the next and perhaps some other very, really kind of practical ways as well. I'm thinking of Luke chapter 19, verses 12 to 19. Uh, Jesus, uh, this happens. They While they were listening to this, Jesus talking or something like that, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, like right now. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Uh, Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to be our king. Um, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Now, I've always seen this passage as, as figurative, and I still kind of think it is figurative, honestly. There are some who actually think it's actually more literally speaking of how we operate in our faithfulness and stewardship of, of, of in this life, and as we're growing in this life, is going to have some kind of carryover as we're reigning in the new earth, and in, in just kind of the responsibilities that we're given in that reigning place. And I think there may be a little bit of that dynamic here in some way, even if not in this literal way of ruling cities. Now, I want to make one thing really, really clear. Um, we are not talking about salvation here. Salvation is absolutely a free gift. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that 
you can do to make God love you more, to earn your salvation. I mean, you have been adopted God's family. It is secure. But there's nothing my kids, my daughter Hannah, there's nothing my kids can do that's going to make me love them more. I love them just as they are. They're, they're secure in our family, period. Um, but, you know, as I love them as they're growing, as they, as they do things, as they grow, I may reward them with helping, giving them more responsibility, more freedom. I think that's the kind of dynamic that we need to look at in this relationship with Jesus. We're secure in our relationship with Jesus. It's not a business transaction. He's our father, and he is, he's, he's growing us. Uh, and, he, and I think part of how we live our lives here is going to have some kind of carryover in the next life in that way. So that's the first thing that Jesus, or the second thing he promises is rewards. And then the third thing that he promises us is a wedding. He promises us a wedding day. Revelation 21, one of the seven angels said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, you know, Jesus, he holds out these rewards as kind of motivation, uh, but the real motivation that he holds out is himself. Mm-hmm. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And over and over again, uh, in the gospel accounts, Jesus calls us to wait, to, to, to expect him, to, to look for him. Uh, Matthew 24 is just one of those, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord uh, will come. He wants us to watch for him, to look for him, to be ready for him, for his return. It's going to be our wedding day. That is the great expectation. That's the living hope of every believer, our ultimate hope is not dying and going to this intermediate state you know, uh, that we currently call heaven. Our, the great longing of the New Testament writers is Christ's return. Our wedding day, uh, Philippians 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians, uh, therefore, uh, you do not lack for any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. First Peter, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Um, you know, the New Testament writers, uh, they all really had an expectation that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. Uh, yet now it's been 2,000 years, and I used, to have, I used to be a little troubled by that, as in how could they have been so wrong on that one? But, you know, Jesus... He actually gave them some pretty clear hints that it might be a while. Uh, You know, he did say, I'm coming soon. But I think he said that so every generation would have this eager, hungry anticipation that he could come at any moment. He wants us to have that hunger. But in Matthew chapter 25, a parable that he gives about waiting for the bridegroom to come, he gives a pretty clear hint that it could be a while. He he says, um, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Um, so there's going to hint. I mean, there, there, there's a hint right there that it was going to be a long time. He, he wants us to not grow weary and wait, waiting to stay alert, to be ready. So whether it's another thousand years from now or it happens tomorrow, we're to be longing for his return, ready for his return. Which kind of leads us just to two applications for tonight. Uh, first application is 
to cultivate the longing. Cultivate the longing. Meditate on his return. Hunger for the new heaven and the new earth and our resurrected lives united to our resurrected Lord and a resurrected universe that will never end. Hunger for your true home. And that is a spiritual discipline. It doesn't happen right away because so much of, you know, our, as we just go about life, we're focused on so many things and that's just life. And so you have to take the time, you have to have the discipline to, to, to uh, intentionally focus on our home, intentionally focus on the, on the things above. That's why the scriptures teach us that, so that we cultivate that hunger all the time. C.S. Lewis said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get showed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and tell others to do the same. A.W. Tozer said, In nature, everything moves in the direction of its hungers. In the spiritual world, it is not otherwise. We gravitate toward our inward longing, provided, of course, that those longings are strong enough to move us. And Randy Alcorn says, we need to spend our lives cultivating our love for heaven. Jesus said this way. So do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's a little exercise for you. Here's some homework. Tonight, after whatever mayhem happens, laser tag, whatever it is, take a moment and just outside, maybe there won't be any stars, but pretend they're stars, and just look up at the sky and wait for his return. And like, do it for like two full minutes. Like, look into the sky like you're waiting for him to come. Like, it could come at any moment. That's just, an, I mean, a two minutes is a long time to stare in the sky, but, but it's going to build a, kind of that expectation as you, as you're, you, at any moment, you can burst through the cosmos. Or another exercise is to meditate on Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. Here's the message version of it. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. Amen. Dallas Willard said, once we have grasped our situation in God's full world of everything that's coming ahead of us, the startling disregard Jesus and the New Testament writers had for physical death suddenly makes more sense. And not only does it make more sense just the disregard for life makes sense in the lives of the saints, but having this understanding of the nature, reality, and longing for the world to come is honestly the only thing that makes sense, just given anything, just given the injustices and unfairness of our broken, fallen world. Gary Black says this, the Bible speaks of, of now and forever as a continuation of a single existence. Consequently, much of the transcendent purpose God has for human life can only be properly discerned in light of eternity. Unfortunately, for an ever-increasing number of us who suffer through the pain and disillusionment of dysfunctional relationships and their families and marriage and political and social injustice and physical and emotional abuse and of mental and psychological disorientation, our lives simply do not 
and will not make sense without eternity as a backdrop in which God can manifest his endless love, redemptive power, and enabling grace. Such perspective alone has the potential to revolutionize the universe. So cultivate that longing uh, for, uh, <coughs> for, for heaven, longing for, for Jesus. So that's the first thing, cultivate the longing. Uh, second thing is live in both worlds. Is my mic on? The second thing is, is to live in both worlds. You know, in one sense, we are actually already in heaven. Did you know that? The Bible talks of us being uh, with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Ephesians 2, 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we live in this incredible dynamic right now in which, uh, in which through the Holy Spirit, we are, we are actually with Christ right now and experiencing, uh, to some degree, uh, the, the things of the coming kingdom. And that is our current state of existence. We are both waiting for the coming kingdom, and we have access to the coming kingdom right now. We are with Christ right now, seated with him in heavenly places, and Jesus calls us to live the kingdom right now and to invite the kingdom to come. He, he prays, he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And this is a dynamic that theologians call the already not yet dynamic of the kingdom. Uh, that the kingdom, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, we're still waiting for, it's not fully here, and yet it is already here in Christ. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dynamic of the kingdom. It's, it's not yet fully here, but it is here. And Paul would pray that our eyes would be open to see this reality. Satan wants to blind us to that reality. Paul prays, open our eyes. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We have access right now to kingdom realities. God's kingdom is not fully here, but we have access to it. And Jesus speaks of this dynamic when, when he both says in his preaching, the kingdom of God is near. And then in another breath, he says, the kingdom of God is here, in your midst, within you. And this is the dynamic that, that began to be experienced by the apostles on, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus gave his disciples this commission. And then he said, don't do it yet. I'm calling you to do heaven-type heaven stuff here on earth, but it will be the Spirit who's going to be your connecting point to this heaven-type stuff, calling on heaven, calling heaven down to earth. And so they waited. 
And they waited, and they waited 10 days, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell, and they were filled with power and, and joy, for people thought they were junk drunk. They were filled with joy. Peter preached a sermon. 3,000 people got saved that day. A little while later, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are beaten in prison. They're released. The church prays, and the place was shaken, and they were empowered to preach the gospel with boldness. It's the kingdom of God breaking into the present in those moments. And so these two application points is to cultivate belonging, but also to invite the kingdom into our, our present reality, our present moment, to, to live in both worlds, this world and the next. We're, we're in both places in this interesting dynamic that we're in until the day of the final resurrection. And we do that by the Holy Spirit. Let me begin to wrap up this way. As we focus on heaven, um, there is also this call to focus on what really matters, this side of heaven. I mentioned on Friday night that I had this plaque. And I've had it on my wall since I was a teenager, and it says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To me, uh, to live is Christ. And also mentioned 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 3, which is this passage about how the earth's going to be destroyed, but longing for, for the renewed earth, the new heaven and the new earth. Well, there's also a, uh, at the end of that, there's this call to count the costs. It says, since all these things are, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteous dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And, and so this waiting for the renewal of all things, it is, it's, it is to be a time of, of counting the costs. And, and what are we spending our lives on? What really matters most? John Eldridge, Eldridge uh, says, the renewal of all things is meant to be your first hope in the same way that God is your first love. If it isn't the answer to your wildest dreams, if you aren't ready at this very moment to sell everything and buy this field, then you've placed your hopes Somewhere else, nearly everyone has. And so maybe ask yourself some questions. Um, like, do I daily reflect on my own mortality? Um, do I daily realize there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I, I and every person I know are going to go to one or the other? Or do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct influence on the world to come. But as we kind of talked about Friday night, don't let the fear factor be your chief motivating factor. It's not a good enough motivator. Rather, let it be the hope of what is awaiting for us, what God is calling us into. And so ask, do I daily reflect on the fact that my ultimate hope will be the new earth where I will see God and serve him as a resurrected being in a resurrected human society where I will overflow with joy and delight in drawing near to God by studying him and his creation where I will exercise to God's glory dominion over his creation. You know, following Christ, it is not a call to abstain from gratification, but, but to delay it. 
It is a call to let go of what is lesser for what is greater. And so don't let fear be your motivating factor, but let it be hope. And so, but think about what that hope is. What is this ultimate thing that we're being called into? Let it be your focus every day. Be thinking about it. No one, I think, painted a more beautiful picture of, the, of what the new earth that we're going to be called into, that, that we're just painting this picture for us uh, uh, this weekend, than C.S. Lewis, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. How that whole series ends, it's an analogy of our own world. Aslan is an line that represents Jesus. Here's how that whole series ends. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly to Peter, Susan, Evan, and Lucy, and that who had just been killed. He says, your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, that's the side of her death. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And this is how the whole book ends. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Isn't that awesome? As we close, I want to kind of pray for us, but I want to kind of read something first before I do that. And... Um, uh, just recently, a dear saint, mentor of mine, passed away. Her name was Pat Lovis. Uh, she um, was a, a missionary to Pakistan in her younger days. She was a great Bible teacher. Uh, she was in our congregation. Uh, she died at 90. And um, just did her funeral a few weeks ago. And as she, before she died, I was in her kitchen. And she, she gave me a piece of paper of a letter that she had written. It was an email that she had written to a friend who was a Christian, but she was worried about, she was fearful, you know, am I really saved? Am I really going uh, to heaven? Uh, she had those concerns. I don't know, maybe even talking about heaven for some of us, we're, there may be some here who, am I, am I, do I, I'm still afraid of what happens when I die. Do I have that assurance? Or maybe you've never truly, uh, you know, made, made that uh, that step to accept Jesus and his forgiveness and, and have that assurance. So um, I just want to read this for you because basically she sent this to a friend. And then Pat, a few weeks ago, she gave it to me. Hardly could talk, but the implication was this applies to me now, to her now. And uh, then she wanted me to read it at her, uh, her funeral. And I know she would want me to read it to a bunch of young people. So here's, here this. Good morning, young people. Um, when I was a child and our family went on a trip, my dad did all the driving, and we would drive all day until he felt too tired to drive anymore. Then we'd start looking for a motel. We'd all be tired and hungry. Sometimes it was hard to find a vacancy sign. Furthermore, dad thought the places all cost too much. Mom thought the cheaper ones were cheap, dirty or smelly or in the wrong part of town. By the time we'd find something, our whole enjoyment of the day was gone. When I returned to the States and started my yearly drives from Washington to Michigan, I got the bright idea 
of having reservations along the way. <laughs> Later, when I could confirm them with credit cards, it was even better. I could take my time, have lunch in some little place, or get off the freeway and find a local park for my picnic, and mosey through little shops in some little town. I had confirmed reservations. I knew where I, I was going and where I'd be staying. It was so freeing. If I found something interesting, I could take the time to enjoy it. Sometimes I'd eat dinner early and then drive on to my reserved place. It was so comforting, so reassuring, so freeing. And then she says, read John 14, 1 and 3. We just read that earlier. You have confirmed reservations. No doubt about that. No need to worry about where you're going. So you can slow down, you can take your time, you can enjoy each day. You can take your time to smell the roses, enjoy people, notice small details you didn't have time for before. Our focus on what is really, or focus on what is really important in this life, and you can rest. May the thought of your confirmed reservation bring peace and joy to you today with love and prayers, Pat. Isn't that great? I just thought that was a wonderful reminder that, that if you know that you have this reservation that Jesus has prepared a place for you, you don't need to worry as you travel through life. You can be free. You can, you can relax. Uh, he has a place for you. And so I want to pray for us around that. Maybe there's someone here who you don't know if you have that reservation. You're not sure where you're going to go when you die. And so I want to pray for you. But also I want to just pray for all of us too if you're open to this just to really invite the kingdom to break through. Invite the Holy Spirit to come in a fresh way and to maybe do whatever you would want in each of us. Maybe each of you, I, I know each of us here maybe have different things that he wants to speak to us right now, maybe call us into. And so uh, let's just bow our heads. And worship team, you guys can come on up. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord Jesus, first I just pray if there's anybody here you're just not sure if you really have those reservations, if you, if you really know that if you were to die at this moment that you would go into and have in, to be with Jesus in his arms in heaven right now and then finally raised to life on the last day. Uh, you, can, you can have an absolute assurance right now. There's just really three simple words. Sorry, thank you, please. Just say, I'm sorry for my sin. Just pray that in your heart right now. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for taking my place. I believe and trust that you died and rose again for me. Please come into my life. Be the king of my life. Be the Lord of my life. And give me that reservation so that I know that I will be with you forever. You can just pray that in your heart. If you pray that in your heart right now, you can know it is a done deal. He has, he has welcomed you in his arm. He will not force the new earth on anyone. But So you have to ask. If you've asked, know that you've received it. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can have that absolute assurance. And now for all of us, I'm just going to invite us to, if you're open to, um, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come, maybe in a fresh way. Because this whole church thing, it doesn't work without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in every believer, but, but we're also called to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a continual thing we do. And how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said, If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So shall we ask? If you'd like to, you can just kind of put your hands on your lap like you're receiving a gift. You don't have to, uh, but if you want to, just kind of put your hands like you're receiving a gift. Just that outward posture just kind of can help our inward posture. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pray. Uh, just invite the Holy Spirit to come and. Um, in a moment, we're going to have some opportunity for those who maybe want some more prayer to have an opportunity to do that. But right now, just for all of us, you know, with no hype, no kind of emotionalism here, we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come, believing and trusting that he will as we invite him to come. So what I usually like to do, too, when I invite the Holy Spirit to come is I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. The Holy Spirit puts all attention on Jesus, not himself. So just picture Jesus right now. He's standing up front. He loves you. And as we do that, just, just invite the Holy Spirit to come. So Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, I invite you to come right now. Holy Spirit, come and fill every person here. Holy Spirit of the living God, come and give us that assurance of the love of God poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Come with your gifts. Come with your fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. invite you to come, Holy Spirit. And then as we've just been focusing this weekend just on... On, on heaven, on Jesus. So I've been seeing you worship with passion. I know too that the Holy Spirit sees each of your hearts uniquely. And there's certain things that he's calling each of you here to do and calling you into. And for some of you, he may be calling you to take a, a fresh step of faith and saying, I, I, want, I want to leave the distractions of the lesser things and embrace the greater things. And so I'm just going to invite uh, the prayer team. Would you just come forward and just be, be ready here at the front? And some of you may feel just a nudge right now that I think I need to take some kind of step here um, to maybe come forward. And, and maybe it's to come forward to, to say that, that I want to leave those lesser things and focus on something greater. Maybe there's something even really specific that, that you need prayer for right now. And the Holy Spirit is stirring that in you. And, and, or maybe there's, you, you're, you would like to receive some, some certain gifts of the Spirit to glorify God more fully. And, and you wanna, you're being moved to come forward in that way too. And so you can just come as I call you forward in just a moment and just ask for prayer from one of the people who will be praying. Or you can maybe just come and, and kneel and just be in a place of prayer as you're waiting to be prayed for. But if you are feeling right now that you need to take some kind of step into a deeper place of calling in the realities of the kingdom into the present, of, of walking the life of the Spirit, or in some other special kind of need, I just invite you, would you just come forward right now?